and welcome. My name is Sue and welcome to another of our Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcasts where we talk all things positive psychology, emotional intelligence, neuroscience and about helping us be the best we can be. And as you know, I often have chats with frolics, uh, so people who I know, friends and colleagues who have an interest in this field. And today we are very lucky to be joined by the fabulous Dr. Gordon Spence, who has spent quite a bit of time in the area of coaching, positive psychology, and now much more around the health side of things. So Gordon, welcome. Thank you, Sue, good to see you. It's good to see you too. And thank you for joining us because even if people haven't heard of your your work, you've had a, a sort of interesting trajectory. And I'm a firm believer, um, mine's been probably a bit more weird than yours has, that everything that we um, we learn along the way and the, and the direction we take helps feed where we are today. So mm. when you think about your sort of your journey, for those who don't know uh, you and your work, mm. where has your journey taken you in this space? Okay, so just a very kind of potted summary of my my journey to date. Um, so I didn't go to university straight out of school. I drifted into a, a, a career in retail banking and international trade for about a dozen years until I realised that that wasn't for me. And uh, I took myself off to uni at the age of 31 to do a, a psych degree. That then led to... Um, uh, a move into coaching psychology. And as, as you know, I, I ended up at uh, Sydney University, did the master's and PhD there. And then I've spent the last, oh, the best part of the last 20 years uh, working coaching psychology, lecturing, um, researching, writing, and uh, and doing a lot of work within organisations and uh, helping leaders um, and employees to develop and become the best version of themselves that they can be, uh, particularly as, a, as it regard in regards to what they do as part of their career. Um, so you know, I was uh, I was engaged in that and, and doing lots of different things for about twenty years. But what I found Sue was that um, about seven or eight years ago, I had this. I've always had this interest. I always had this interest in human movement, exercise science. And, and before I did my psych degree, I almost did a human movement degree, but yeah. I didn't. And I don't necessarily regret that. But my point is that it was a, a, a niche that still mm. needed to be scratched. <laughs> and so about seven or eight years ago, I started running again at the age of 48 because I had a goal. I wanted to run another marathon before I turned 50. And, and as I started to engage with that and started to set some goals and push those distances out a little bit more, I was experiencing a really interesting thing that was happening not only from a physical standpoint as I was starting to develop my running but then also the the, the mental journey and the mental challenges and the things that, that I was experiencing as I was doing it and so my point is that it really fired up this interest that I had in human movement exercise science and so I decided to take myself back to school I know um, I love that you went back to, to school <laughs> Bachelor of exercise science exercise and sports science at the tender age of 51 and <laughs> it was a um it was a wonderful experience um I, I used to go into lectures um and come out with my head like popcorn because of all the stuff that I was learning, and 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 so I was able to I was able to put some understanding in behind the experiences I was having at the time as I was becoming more physically active myself, and so I really then developed this interest in wanting to work at the intersection 
of psychology and exercise science. And that's where I'm at at the moment. That's what the two books have been about. I published last year and some of the other work that I'm doing at the moment is very much focused on that. Um, and I connect that back into the other work that I've been doing in organisations through the lens of sustainable performance, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, the physical activity, I think, is a really, really important part of being able to manage our energy in such a way that we're able to sustain performance in ways that are pleasing to us and others. Yeah, brilliant. And I love that, as I say, many people may have known you for your work and the publications that you've had around the coaching psychology. Um, mm. And obviously, when we first met, you were uh, doing work in that sort of space with Sydney Uni and then Wollongong and um, mm. doing lots of other things in that space. Um, but what I really love is how that is then feeding into still where you've sort of had that trajectory around the exercise science, but actually being able to use your knowledge from a psychological perspective, the pos psych and the coaching psychology that's going to help you understand that people don't just the the things that get in the way of movement is not just physical uh it's much more that sort of mental that psychological side of things oh 100 100 one of the things that was very influential certainly early on when I was writing about healthy aging and when I was writing about you know the particular interest that I've had which is was my own experience which is people returning to exercise and physical activity in midlife the challenge of doing that and I was having my own experience of that I was noting noticing other people doing that and I was getting really interested in it and as I was beginning to write on that I, I stumbled across a, a concept called the uh, paradox of exercise or a phenomena called the paradox of exercise which is essentially the idea that well you know most of us because there's been lots of good health promotion campaigns that have been delivered into communities over the years most of us understand that physical activity is good for us Yet, for majority of people, certainly one in two Australian adults um, don't um, aren't active to an extent that allows them to be able to maintain, you know, adequate health, physical health, right? And so we know it's good for us, but we don't tend to we don't tend to engage in it. And and so that some of the issues surrounding this paradox have been quite um, interesting to me. And so to your point about the things that get in the way. Um, one of the things I've been looking at is trying to unpack well, what are some of the things that lead to that paradox. And I think there's, just quickly, there's three things. Um, one is there's a, um, a prescription problem. So when it comes to physical activity, health promotion, what you tend to get is a lot of guidelines. You get a lot of health promotion advice, which is essentially evidence-based telling. So it's health experts telling people what they should be doing. Now, I don't know about you, but most people tend not to enjoy being told what to do, and particularly when that's been repeated and repeated and repeated uh, as a message fatigue that I think for some people can turn that to almost like a source of white noise. Yeah. So there's a prescription problem. But then there's also the perception problem, which is exercise is one of those words that has comes with a lot of semantic baggage <laughs> and so it, it's not a word that tends to lead people to have their heart sore when they start to think about exercise it can be associated with notions of boredom drudgery pain discomfort and a whole range of things that aren't helpful so I tend not to use the exercise word very much I tend to speak more about movement or speak more about physical activity because they're more encompassing yeah. Uh, and the other thing that's that's sort of interesting about that paradox of exercise is an evolutionary um, perspective on it. And so we know by virtue of the way in which humans are sort of designed and have evolved that we're great endurance athletes. 
we can thermoregulate via sweating. And so that means we can go for long periods of time and that's been great. And that was certainly helpful when we were hunter gatherers and, you know, essentially needing to track down food and et cetera. So we, that's great. Um, but in order to be able to do that, we had to manage our energy within tight limits. Hmm. And so, yes, we could be highly physically active, but we also had to be really good at being physically lazy, <laughs> right? We had to be really good at that so that we were able to restore the energy cup so we could go again. Now, the, the problem has, has occurred where, where with the development of, of the human species and technology, et cetera, et cetera, we now live in these high convenience societies where in order to be able to um, uh, meet our calorie needs, our energy needs, we don't have to work very hard for that. We can shop online, we can get Woolies to deliver, we can do all of these things, yet we tend to rest as though we did expend. Yeah, we're very good at the laziness bit. We're very good at the laziness piece. <laughs> so unless physical activity, unless we uh, something about our environment requires us to do it, um, or in or is in some other way compelling, we're likely not to do it. Mm. And so what can make physical activity compelling? One of the things that can make physical activity compelling is enjoyment and satisfaction and, you know, really loving the thing that you might want to engage with. And that's sort of the centerpiece of the work that I've been doing is really focusing in on enjoyment, positive emotions associated with physical activity and taking enjoyment seriously is the way that I'm sort of describing yeah. that. And and it's interesting you say that because if I think about um, what all the research tells us, that if I am pursuing a goal that is driven by positive emotion, I am much more likely to enjoy the journey and achieve it than I am pursuing a goal driven by negative emotion. So to your point, if I'm only going to the gym because I feel I should and I'm trying to lose weight, get fit, whatever it is, and it feels like drudgery and a chore and I get intimidated at the gym and whatever you, I'm yeah. less likely to keep going. Whereas if you can bring fun and enjoyment and you know, and I often share my story about, you know, when I do go on the beach, um, I'm playing almost, whether I'm running or walking, I'm enjoying the environment. Um, mm -hmm. And bringing that to your exercise is really critical. And then coming back to the, to the, 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 the point you were making earlier about obstacles, mm -hmm. then you can load in some other stuff in, 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 over and above some of the things I've already mentioned, things like self-directed ageism. So self-directed agent is this idea that, you know, these self-limiting beliefs that we have about what we're capable of doing based on a number. Yeah, I'm too old for that as soon as you turn 40 or something. I'm 45, I'm 55, I'm too old for X and so I won't do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that can be, I think, a really significant barrier. Mm -hmm. But this is where some of the exercise science literature that I've engaged with across the course of the degree has been really, really kind of illuminating. Um, and when you start to delve into it, when you start to look at what human beings are capable of beyond the age of 40, it's quite extraordinary, mm. right? And so if you just, I remember there's a, a study published by the head of program of the um, degree that I did. And what he did with his colleague was that they they took, um, they took 1500 uh, meter swimming. No, no, what was it? Yeah, it uh, was, was swimming world records and maybe it was 1500 meters running. I can't remember exactly what it was. And what they did was in five year increments, they plotted the world record times across, you know, several decades, you know, mm -hmm. right from sort of 20s right through to 85, 90 years of age. And what you see is over time, 
as you would expect, a natural decline, a natural slowing of times across both of those disciplines. But the really interesting thing about the way in which they graphed that and the data that they shared was that, that those times don't seriously head south. So people don't get dramatically slower until about the age of 70, mm. right? which is really interesting. So not everybody's a world record breaker, I understand that. But what it seems to be reflecting is that a lot of people are sitting on a physical capacity that mm. they don't necessarily realise is there yeah. beyond the age of 40, beyond the age of 50. And the other thing is that we know that if we're going to positively stress our system, challenge our system physically, the body is going to, the body will respond. Yeah. And there's no age cap on that. And mm. so there's been studies looking at, pre-frailty and frailty for older adults you know beyond the age of 80 where they've engaged in training programs of one sort or another appropriate to their age and they've been able to change their status so in other words they've they've challenged their bodies and their bodies have responded even in that later stage of life so i think there's a number of things in there around ageism and um, the negative age stereotypes that we can sometimes embody Mm. And we know from epidemiological studies when we when we when we embody negative age stereotypes, it can shave about seven years off one's life, mm. yeah. as opposed to those who hold positive age stereotypes and don't see age as a barrier and and keep on getting involved and keep on being active. Yeah, so it's almost like we're putting ourselves back before we've even started. Um, absolutely. And what I think is interesting, if we just come back to that physical element, I know um, the workshop that you did uh, at the World Congress of Positive Psychology in Vancouver, you showed a, a slice of a, a through someone's thigh, if oh, yeah. you like, of the, the muscle. And it just links to what you just said about that we sometimes assume we're degenerating faster than we actually, our, our physical bodies are degenerating our mind gives up first can you, can you share a little bit about that because i think it's a really powerful incentive yeah there's there's a number of um mri studies that have been done that have looked at, at cross sections of yeah they uh, didn't cut people's legs sorry I no no they did not no no they're in, <laughs> mri scans that looked at um muscle mass uh and um bone size and and, and levels of adipose tissue and 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 they're really quite striking images uh, and not difficult to find if people want to sort of try to dial them up somehow on, on, um, on, on a search engine. And, and essentially what it shows is a really stark contrast between an active 40-year-old um, triathlete in, in one case where you can see that there's good muscle mass, there's good bone size and, and, and minimal kind of adipose tissue and then contrasting that so physically active 40 year old with a physically inactive 70 year old and a physically active 70 year old and what you see by by looking at those two different images of the two older adults is the amount of muscle wastage the um, bone um, uh, bone size decreases the increase of of, of, of um, uh, fat tissue um, is striking but what's more striking is the, 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 the lack of difference between the 40-year-old and the 70-year-old. Mm. And so the message from studies like that is that if you use it, you keep it. Yeah. You know, this, this physical strength, this bone density, the, you know, all those physical characteristics that allow us to be strong and be able to engage in functional movement was really important in ages, later stages of, of life. Like, you know, for instance, just simply being able to squat. 
Mm. You know, it was one of the things that that can make the difference between you being able to live independently and yeah. needing to, you know, be assisted with your living or or even lo losing your independence. Yeah. So uh, some of those MRI studies and some of that work that's been done in exercise science, I think, is really has a really important story to tell mm. around, you know, some people say use it and lose it. I, I like to say use it and keep it because yeah. it's there. And if we decide to um, make decisions that allow us to, to use those capacities, then we will retain it. And from a from a healthy aging perspective, what are we doing? We're increasing our health span. Mm. We're allowing yeah. ourselves to be able to continue to enjoy more of life for longer. Yeah. Really and I are. think that's the important thing that I know you talk about. It's not lifespan, it's health span, because I don't know about you, that whatever age I die, which at some point will happen, I want to be healthy as long as possible. I don't want to live as long as possible. I want to be healthy as long as possible. Yeah. Um, and one of the thing, interesting things about this, too, I think, is that, you know, people might be listening to this and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, not everybody's so lucky. You know, Sometimes things happen in life, right, that don't don't allow us necessarily to be playing on an even playing field with others. And this is where I think it kind of, you know, it, it starts to, um, we can start to, to, to explore the benefits of physical activity in some more nuanced ways. And so just to illustrate what I'm, what I'm talking about here, in the second book, um, 26 Ways to Keep Moving, we interviewed a guy named Pete. And Pete was a he was, because it, it, it's an A to Z, as you know, so it's A to Z, 26 ways to keep moving cool. through the alphabet. And our T chapter was table tennis. And we interviewed Pete. And Pete is, at the time, I think he was about 71, 72. Um, and for 50-odd years, Pete's played table tennis. And for about 45 of those years, he was an A-grade player. Right, so very, very good table tennis player. And then he had a stroke. And he became... Um, um, uh, paralyzed down one side so on his right side hemiplegic and he was a right-sided player and so he had two years of of you know painstaking kind of rehabilitation and then he got sick of just sitting around watching people play the sport that he loved to play and so he um, he asked some of the guys that he played with whether you know they might help him to learn to play again and so what they did was they took Pete down to um, uh, the table tennis center um, at least sort of three times a week, I think it was. And they, they propped Pete up at one end of the table with a bat in the left hand and they had buckets of balls and they just fired buckets of balls at him continuously. And Pete, uh, over the course of the next few years, learned how to play left-handed, which was when my son and I came into contact with Pete. Now, the thing about that is that um, at the age of, I think it was about 67 at the time, Pete is learning how to play table tennis yeah. with his non-dominant hand, right? Mm -hmm. And these days, a few years on, he's now able to play without even having to think about it. He still has mobility issues, yeah. but there are a number of things about his physical state that are vastly better now than they would have been if he hadn't engaged in this sport that he enjoys so much. Mm -hmm. And so Pete will tell you that table tennis saved his life. Yeah, right. And there's a number of things about it that have been particularly important. And one of those things has been the social connection mm. and, the, and, and his continued engagement with that particular community, which is just gold for him. So I think there's lots of different ways that physical activity can continue to be a part of our life, even if certain things have happened to maybe limit our options. That doesn't mean that the options don't exist.
Yeah. And it's interesting, Gordon, I'd love your thoughts on this, because I know you wrote about this in your first book as well, that um, perception problem that you just mentioned about our mindset. Um, and, and I shared this with you when I had a, a moment of insight uh, that at school, I never wanted to do yeah. uh, exercise. I want, did everything I could to get out of any form of sport. Mm. And it was only more recently that I recognized that competitive is my number one weakness on any strengths tool that I ever do. Yeah. And everything that I did at school from a sport perspective, always had competition. Now it might be different now, but for me growing up at school, there was always a competitive element. You're always trying to be encouraged to win and I never wanted to do that. So mm. I kind of didn't do exercise. Yep. Um, one of the things to your point that I love is um, when I talk about from a neuroscience perspective, I talk about your brain needs you to move. It's not necessarily about exercise, it's about movement. Mm. So how do we deal with some of those um, psychological things that are getting in our way that can pull us towards moving again whether it's fear of pain or um like mine of realizing that actually this is not helping you know when I'm doing anything competitive how do we get past some of those psychological barriers well I think one of the first things we need to do is is acknowledge where those might barriers might come from and so so like 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 a lot of things I think with increasing awareness and insight as to where those barriers have come from um, we can pot we potentially can open up new ways of approaching situations that we might not have been disinclined to lean into. Um, and so your example, I think, of your past experience, I think, is a really is a really important point that you're making, right? And 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 certainly part of the process that I um, that I use as part of get moving, keep moving, is to get people to reflect back mm. and think about what they used to do from a physical activity standpoint at a time in their life when they're likely to have enjoyed it and naturally done it more at, at, more than at, at any other time in their life. And that's childhood, adolescence, when we tend to be, certainly people of our generation tend to have been more physically active, right? And, and for a lot of people, I think what we know is that sports and activity-based memories tend to be some of the strongest and some of the most positive but they're not always positive. Mm. And so there's been studies done looking at things like um, the quality of, of children's research, res, res, recess time experience. Yep. Right? Being picked last for sporting teams. Yep, that was always me. Hyper-competitiveness, <laughs> right? And being driven by coaches or parents or whatever. These are all things that can disincline people towards it right and so I think if we can understand where that's come from then we can perhaps understand that not all physical activity and not all sport is necessarily does necessarily needs to be competitive mm. right now if that's the way that it's that it's been shaped in my mind then maybe we can bust that open and, and actually you know find where the myths reside in the way in which we've understood it and re-understand it in a different way. So to give you an example of, of, a, of, a, of a, a global movement that I think is, is, is helping in this regard for people is the park run movement, mm. right? Now, park run, for those who, who, who are watching or listening to this and don't know of it, park run is a free community health initiative that is now run, well, it's run in about 35 countries around the world, I think, um, and in Australia, up to around 450 different events run around Australia every Saturday morning, most places at eight o'clock in the morning. And the idea of park run is not to run necessarily, it's to walk, run or jog mm -hmm. at a level that uh, makes sense for whoever might be um, participating. And it's, it's highly inclusive. 
People don't even have to participate. They can volunteer because this is a free a free initiative. It's run on the on the free energy of volunteers. And mm-hmm. so people can have an opportunity either to participate or to, to volunteer and get a sense of meaning and purpose and contribution from that. And it's completely uncompetitive. Yeah. Right? People get to choose how they engage with it. And it's so very welcoming and encouraging and, and all of those things. So I think that... Um, if we know what we're sensitized to or sensitive to, in mm. your case, it was the competitiveness, then we can perhaps go looking for other options where where that's not a feature or mm. not prominent in the way in which those activities are um, delivered uh, and offered. Yeah, and I think your your little exercise that you did for everybody listening, it was to sort of go back to different times in your life, different chunks of times of when did you enjoy some form of movement. And and as you know, it took me a while to uh, to find anything that I found particularly enjoying. Uh, but I, I recognise that when I was a teenager, so probably even just before my teens, uh, all the way through till I left home, I used to absolutely love, and I would get up early every morning and do this. I would do my Jane Fonda videos, my step videos by my myself in my bedroom because there's nobody to compete with but I'd be cracking up my coordination was all over the place so I'd be having such fun Mm. and there was nobody to look at me and laugh at me and say that I was doing it wrong or anything like that exactly yeah so I think that little exercise if if people listening want to take it on is really useful of when did you enjoy different forms of movement at different times of your life and then what was it about those forms of movement so Mm. thank you for introducing that exercise it's a good one yeah no problem (laughs) and I think I think this is, is this is the other thing that that's worth just recognizing is that we are designed in a way that we work best when we are using our physical capacities, mm. right? So this is where uh, evolutionary biologists will, will talk about a lot of lifestyle, sorry, a lot of the, the diseases that sort of seem to plague um, societies these days as being lifestyle diseases, obesity and, and diabetes and, and, and these things um, are as a function of the fact that we aren't, we aren't moving um, to the levels that that are sort of re- required by the way in which we're designed mm. um, and so whatever movement that is 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 fine everybody's going to have a different set of preferences and a different set of of interests in this regard if it's Jane Fonda videos in the privacy of your own um, uh, bedroom then great <laughs> um, but you know let's at least try to understand that the other thing I think that's sort of interesting is that sometimes, you know, casting back and thinking about the things I used to do and the things I used to enjoy as potentially a basis for moving forward, won't necessarily always surface um, the things that might be most interesting now, right? So sometimes people, I think, in their in their childhood or adolescence might have looked at a particular type of physical activity or physical pursuit and thought, oh, that would have been, that be, would have been cool, but I never got a chance to do it. Yeah. Right. So I think there's also a, a value in reflecting on that and whether there's potential for opening up something new now, because I always wished I could could have done it. Yeah. But the other thing too, just to use another story from 26 Ways, that I think it's probably my favorite story, which is the story of Eddie. Uh, you probably remember this from the workshop. And Eddie, um, <clears throat> when we in- interviewed him, was 60. And for the first 50 years of Eddie's life, he really didn't engage in any regular physical activity at all. Didn't play any sport. He was bullied at school, quite a slight guy, very light, didn't have a whole lot of strength. And the rowers and the footy players used to really give him a hard time. So he was disinclined. And he came from a family that he described as being anti-sport. 
And so Eddie threw himself into academics and music for the first 50 years. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's got a PhD. Um, but when he turned 50, his two teenage boys who were um, uh, on the spectrum um, were, his doctor was saying to him, look, you really need to find something for these kids to discharge their energy uh, into. And, and so Eddie asked them, well, what do you want to do? And one of his sons says, I want to do sword fighting, dad. And so next thing you know, Eddie's become a fencing dad and he's standing off the pisht, leaning against the wall, watching them a couple of nights a week do fencing until one night when he decided to go over and have a go. You know, so he went over and picked up a foil. It's 500 grams, very, very light. And that was the first insight. It was like, wow, this is light. You know, I could possibly do this. So he starts to have a little go, started to land a few hits, got a little bit more encouraged. Long story short, he got involved. And 10 years later, right, um, this was when he was 50, and we interviewed him when he was 60. 10 years later, he is competing in veterans events. He's winning medals. He is uh, a, a fencing coach. He's organizing tournaments. He knows everything about the strategy and the history of fencing. He's a complete nut for the sport. <laughs> And he's even designed his own fitness regimes just by looking around, watching soccer teams do stuff, looking online, reading books. And he's de developed his own fitness regime. He's much stronger. He's got more endurance. He's more physically fit than he's ever been in his life. And he absolutely loves it. Yeah. And so I kind of love that story because I think there's a lot of people who will walk around if you stop them would say, oh, I'm not very sporty or I'm not the sporting type. And I do wonder about that because... The mindset. Me, I think we're, we're, we're naturally active creatures and I think we like to use our bodies in space, but sometimes we don't get encouraged to do it and sometimes we don't find our thing. And mm. I think Eddie's is a great story because he found his thing. It took him 50 years, yeah. but boy, oh boy, um, you know, so <laughs> he arrived there, right? So it's, it's a pretty cool story. And so thinking about that, just picking up on that again. So you've got obviously the two books and the second one was the 26 ways. So yeah. from all that exploration, what was the most fun or the most weirdest um, physical uh, activity that you've tried? Well, the, uh, oh, there's, there's a few. I haven't tried. I haven't tried this one yet, but I'm really keen to do it. Riley and I want to get up to the Blue Mountains um, and and go and see Amy, who has done a bit of extreme ironing in her time. So um, uh, extreme ironing is basically ironing in extreme places. And and um, Amy's a canyoner. So she, you know, she kind of abseils down waterfalls and, and rides rapids and does all sorts of stuff. But every now and again, she's got an iron and an ironing board and with a couple of mates has gone and and uh, and climbed to kind of bizarre places and set up an iron and done some, you know, pretend ironing of tea towels and stuff. <laughs> Um, and this is actually a thing, right? There's a world championships and, and world records that have been that have been set around extreme ironing. People ironing whilst base jumping or jumping out of planes. People ironing off the back of speedboats on on water skis. And there's even a record of 172 people ironing underwater in a swimming pool in the Netherlands. So it's a it's a it's a sport, and and it, it, oh, it's and records dumb. associated with it, but. <laughs> included it in the book because I think it's you know it's a bit left field it's very it's very kind of fun it's quite creative but it also illustrates what's possible to do and how it's possible to be really playful with physical activity she's able to do it because her canyoning yeah. allows her to do it yeah. right and and that I guess also sort of leads on to the other wacky one that we included in 26 ways was bog snorkeling 
and bog snorkeling only really happens in Wales, although it did happen in, in Australia for a short time, where you get into a 55 metre trench that's that's um, dug in a peat bog, which fills up with bog water and everything that lives in the bog, like small eels and, and other things. And you put a snorkel, flippers and, and a mask on, and you basically you try and kick your way down this, this trench, do two lengths, and whoever does the quickest time wins. We um, we interviewed for that chapter, we interviewed Neil, who's a cyclist. So he's got great thighs, really strong lower, lower body. And he went along to this thing just as a bit of a laugh, walked off the bog at the end of the day, a world champion. And now <laughs> he's a four-time world champion and holds the world record for bog snorkeling. And again, another example of just how you can be playful with it and how his cycling was an enabler for that in a really kind of fun way. I love it. I love it. Now, my last question to you is, I know, obviously, physical activity is really important to you from a well-being perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but if we think of the holistic area of sort of positive psychology, what else do you do for your well-being? Um, what else do I do for my, well, I like to drink a lot of water. Um, actually, that might seem, sound like a fairly obvious thing to say, but um, uh, I got a kidney stone about 10 years ago. And one of the reasons was I wasn't drinking enough water. Um, so that I try and attend to some of the the, the little things, the, the sort of quite basic things and make sure that um, that I'm uh, I'm doing that. So uh, definitely um, paying attention to nutrition, paying attention to hydration are two that um, are pretty critically important, particularly from a performance perspective. So I think one of the interesting things about hydration particularly is that we know that as people get older, um, their ability to detect um, uh, thirst sensations decreases, uh, which I think is kind of interesting because I think there's probably a lot of mildly dehydrated people walking around. And when we become dehydrated, as you would know, um, we, um, you know, we start to feel sluggish. We can start to feel kind of headachey and, and just off. Um, so that's one thing that I, that I definitely do. Um, well, I guess, um, do you want me to talk about things other than physical activity? Because my yeah. favorite my favorite thing, Sue, is to get up into the forest and do some trail running. Um, that's that's kind of my, my main thing that I that I love to do. Um, so I get a lot of a, a lot out of that from a um, from a physical standpoint, but also from a mental standpoint. So yeah. I find I solve lots of problems and get quite creative uh, <laughs> when I have time alone out there in nature. So. Um, you know, that, that, that's a, that's a pillar for me. Um, mm. but you know, other things I like to, um, I love to do stuff with my kids. Um, so I, I try to, one of the reasons I, I got back into running at 48 and really got focused on it was I wanted to make sure that as the kids got older and Riley's now 16 and Ella's 14, that I was able to kind of keep up with them and uh, and be able to engage with things that they are doing and open up interesting possibilities for us. And that's worked, I think. So um, I'm not sure if you know this, but but about four years ago, Ella and I contacted I, her. Do you know you remember this story? The dancing. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we contacted the studio awesome. owner and I and I said to I said to Ella, would you like to do a, a dance with me? And um, and so we contacted the studio owner and said, look, I've got this idea for a dance. I know what song it is. I've got a bit of a storyline. Um, would you be willing to give us a little bit of studio time and, and one of the teachers to help us choreograph a dance? And so we did. Spent three months uh, learning this thing to um, Queen's Don't Stop Me Now. And we performed it at Tour Stedford's. And I've even got a, I've even got a trophy here somewhere, Sue. 
Um, and that was, look, that was four years ago. Ella was 10 and I'm so pleased we did it. Um, it was a whole heap of fun and a, a lifelong memory that, um, that, that I'll always cherish, um, as has been writing the books with Riley. So I guess, you know, trying to find ways that I could stay, you know, really connected with with my kids as they growed up and, and and were growing up and trying to engage with their interests in ways that could be enjoyable for both of us is something that's been enormously satisfying. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much because you brought together some of the things in PodPsych that we know is one of the mm. most important to well-being, which is human connection. So um uh, yep. so important for us thank you so much Gordon I know there's so much more we can talk about and we are going to get to talk uh, at happiness and its causes uh, in, in the not too distant future where we get to work together again so thank you for joining us thank you everybody for listening and I hope maybe Gordon's inspired you to increase movement in your life thanks Gordon thank you Sue it's been a pleasure and if you would like to listen to more, please stay connected to us on our Lemacy Walk and Talk podcast. And if you want to join us for some of our live member sessions with Expert in Conversations uh, or other live events, then please consider becoming a member of our Learn with Sue portal, uh, learnwithsue.com.au. Otherwise, I'll see you back here again next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye.